This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 14. This is Writing Excuses, Poetic Language. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. I'm Amal. And I'm Howard. And uh, we're going to be talking about poetic language this time. Um, Amal has a, the, the starting question on her outline is, what do we mean by this? So uh, <laughs> t- tell us, what, what do we mean by poetic language? I was going to throw that to you, but actually I'm going to start with, um, you know, I'm going to start with uh, a tiny anecdote, which is I am, um, I'm always, so I, I have this book that I co-wrote with uh, my dear friend, Max Gladstone. Uh, The book is called, This is How You Lose the Time War. And uh, and it's, it's a time traveling super spies write each other letters and fall in love sort of book. Um, very simple, very straightforward, obviously. Uh, but the um, I've often seen uh, people react to this book by saying, oh, the language of it is so poetic. Um, it's like reading poetry. Um, and I'm always really interested by the people who say that uh, as a feature and those who say that as a bug. And uh, and I wanted to kind of ask you um, when, like, if you were to read something and and say that, oh, this is such poetic language, you know, what would you tend to mean by that? Hmm. If you sit me in front of a really, really beautifully prepared with complementing flavors all the way through it plate of sushi, I know to slow down. Hmm. If I'm at the all-you-can-eat sushi place, I'm just going to pack it in at the rate that feels comfortable for me. As fast as those little boats come by. As fast as those little boats come by. The, the there is an experience to reading a poem, and it is an experience that is not at all dissimilar to reading. I'm going to say purple prose, but I don't mean purple in the bad way. To reading really beautifully crafted, poetic in nature prose, uh, the the experience is similar for me in that. I am slowing down and I am savoring every breath. I am reading it as if I were speaking it. Whereas Mm. if it's not poetic, I am reading it in quadrants as my brain sucks up blocks of text from the page. Hmm. So I, 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 I love that. that this idea that there, that poetry can be poetic language is much more dense that it can contain a lot of meaning compressed into a smaller area. Um, And I, but correlated with that is uh, I I always consider poetic language to be a little more oblique. Um, Roger Miller, who's a a folk singer and a a songwriter, he said that uh, while music doesn't approach things head on, a song is a glancing blow to reality. And I've Ooh. loved that phrase. 
and it, uh, I, I'm going to tell a little story here. I'm going to take a little bit of time. Um, that what generally considered to be one of, if not the very greatest writer of haiku of all time, was a Japanese poet named Basho. And he would write these incredible things in this very small, very evocative poetic form. And uh, one of the ways that haiku used to be used, and possibly still is, but at least back in the day when Basho was around, is it was a uh, game. People would sit around, often in a tavern, and write haiku about a topic. Mm -hmm. And this story is about one night when they said the topic was the full moon. And so everybody went around in a circle and they gave their little haiku about how the full moon is very bright or whatever. And then you get to Basho and he starts by saying the new moon. And they're all like, dude, you got that wrong. We're, we're talking about the full moon right now. And he says, let me finish. <laughs> and his haiku is this, the new moon, two weeks I have waited, but ah, tonight. And that isn't directly about the full moon, but it packs so much meaning in there. It is so dense with imagery and with this evocative emotion to it that it is completely about the full moon anyway. And I love that. I love the way that poetic language is able to give that kind of glancing blow to reality while still conveying this immense backlog of information and emotion. That is so beautiful. It really is. And interestingly, the exact opposite of where I would have gone. <laughs> well, that makes it even better. Let, let, let's exactly. hear what you're going to say. Because I was sitting there thinking, specifically when I am reading prose, what is it that makes me go, oh, this language is poetic? And for me, it is language that is beautiful even without context. Hmm. Um, like uh, the, um, the one of the one of my favorite uh, very dead writers is uh, a woman named Myrtle Reed, who is writing prose in the early like 1907. Um, and she she talks about someone is is arriving at this house and that the um, the uh, oh, I've forgotten. Oh, there's a word that I've has just gone out of my brain completely. Um, but the, the the porch was the unhappy afterthought of an architect. And and it's just like, that's just so lovely and, and evocative, but without any other context. Like that can stand on its own and be a lovely thing by itself. Um, and that that for me is, I think, part of it when I, I think about hitting poetic language in a, in a novel. It's it it's that the lines contain a um I don't want to say grace and and beauty is not quite right either but there is there is a um they exist on their own on their own merit you know they they have a shape to themselves that exists that does not need other context uh whereas like when you when you read uh where the wild things are which is wonderful. You get to that last line, which is so beautiful and so evocative, and it was still hot. Mm -hmm. It needs context mm -hmm. in order to understand why that is a beautiful thing. Oh my gosh. I, I love both these answers so much because they, I mean, they, I feel like they touch on um, the kind of spectrum that I really would like to think about in terms of poetic language that, um, you so what Dan was talking about um, feels like 
there you're describing poetry playing with negative space, right? Like mm-hmm. the, what Basha was doing there is um, it, the, like, a bit like the way Mary Robinette talks about puppetry um, and about the uh, the sort of the, um, I can't remember if this was you who said this or if it was, um, oh no, um, Snuffleupagus, uh, Martin. Marty. Mar- yes, thank you. Uh, but he said like the poet, the, the poet, the poem, the puppet, poem and puppet, basically the same. Same thing. Um, but yeah, but the, the puppet is is half alive and it's given like half its life by the audience and half by the puppeteer. Um, and I feel like this, what, what you're describing in Basho's poem, Dan, is um, that the, the poem is half there and the rest of it is is made up by the audience and so that is so much of the way that haiku functions um that it is sort of pinging on a little bit the way um i remember seeing an an abstract painting and the way that this painting functioned was partly by making you aware of the after images that it left on your eyes when Mm. you closed eyes you know and I think that poetry and poetic language can absolutely do that and play with that that negative space and Mary Robinow what you're describing instead is like the completeness of um of a line of prose or of a line of um just a sentence in a novel that can stand on its own and give you a complete emotional experience mm-hmm. from just that line taken out of its context. I think that that is a lot of the time the way that we um, interact with uh, with text, that that is a line that is singing all of a sudden, you yeah. know, that it, you're giving your attention to it in a way that you would give to a performer or a performance um, in a way that is different, that isn't connected to other things. So I love these answers because a lot of the time um, when someone talks about language as being poetic, they are defaulting towards an assumption that the language is inherently more difficult to understand. Um, And I'm so happy to have already, you know, (laughs) challenged that. Um, But let's pause, I think. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Yes. For our book of the week before getting into that. Yeah, and I think actually you were going to tell us about our book of the week, um, Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse, which, oh no, Dan was going to tell us about it. Actually, yes. I think many of us could rant yes. and rave about many this, of us could. This, this amazing I book. <laughs> I love yeah. that book. So uh, Trail of Lightning is, um, it, it, it's a really delightful book. It is uh, kind of an action adventure in some ways, modern fantasy 
But what I love about it is that it continues to redefine itself. And, and I don't consider it a spoiler to say that once you get two, maybe three chapters into it, you realize it's not a modern fantasy. It's actually post-apocalyptic. Um, it is filled with magic and gods and monsters and Native American culture and theology. Um, and the main character is like a vicious killer who is also a very sweet and kind of broken person who is trying to uh, heal herself as she deals with these horrible monsters in the real world. Uh, really, really love this. I listened to the audiobook, and the reader is fantastic as well, which is always a plus. So uh, The Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse. I want that book to be a TV show so bad. Oh, it would be I, such I a feel, good one. I mean, oh my uh, goodness, yes. I just feel like, you know, hey, Supernatural is uh, over now. So if there is a sort of urban fantasy shaped hole in your televisual lives, I think that this could absolutely fill it. It is just, it, it's so it's so suited, I think, to um, to television treatment. Also, I haven't read the sequels yet, but I'm, I'm very excited too. Um, in the discussion of poetic language, I... Uh, when I'm teaching humor, um, I like to cite uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Bells as an example of how you use word choice to mean things that the words themselves are not meaning. Uh, mm. You know, when he's talking about the silver bells, while the stars that oversprinkle, all the heavens seem to twinkle with a crystalline delight. And he's got all these words that sound silvery. When he's mm -hmm. talking about the golden bells, He's using words that have rounder sounds to them. Um, when I opened this, uh, oh, when I said uh, uh, the thing about the sushi, um, there are there are two uh, two word pairs: uh, utterly consumed and totally devoured. Both of which could be applied to the plate of sushi in front of me, depending <laughs> on the context of of the rest of the story I am trying to tell. I will choose one or the other of those because of what they sound like, because of the other words whose sounds they echo, especially if I'm trying to tell a joke. Hmm. Uh, if there is a little bit of a rhyme in there or if there's wordplay, uh, you know, conflict and consumed uh, somewhere, uh, it, those are how I make those choices. So when we talk about poetic language, um, I lean into this hard when I'm writing jokes because there are words that are technically synonyms, which once I put them in place will mean completely different things. That is so, so true. And I love that you bring up comedy as well, because I feel like uh, comedy, um, like horror in some ways, uh, are, is defined a lot by a certain pace, right? By a certain kind of... Um, by, by also by the production of an effect, essentially. You know, we, we, when we talk about science fiction, we talk about fantasy as genres, we usually talk about them in terms of their contents or uh, the things that you expect to find in them. But when you talk about comedy and horror, you're talking about an effect that you're producing. You're talking about something that's going to make you laugh and something that's going to make you scared. Um, and I think that that dovetails very well with poetry because poetry is so often oriented towards affect, towards making you feel something first, 
primarily, whether it's telling you a narrative, whether it's, you know, uh, whether it's a limerick for that matter, you know, whether it's any number of different shapes and forms, um, the language is calculated, crafted to produce an effect. And, um, and to that end, I want to just wrap this up by saying that, um, instead of thinking about poetic language as inherently one kind of way, whether that's dense or whether that's difficult or whether that's, you know, um, thick with metaphor or what have you, I'd like for you to think about it as a, a series of, of spectra, essentially, that you can have with any sentence, uh, with any use of language, um, a, a whole spectrum from sparse to lush, right? Uh, or from opaque to clear. And if you think in those terms instead of poetic versus not poetic, you'll get a lot closer to using um, a kind of more granular set of tools for shaping your own writing. Um, I want to give you an example of some very, very sparse and clear and simple language that creates a very opaque image. Um, and or something, I mean, and I can do this in prose, but with reference to, I don't know, something like Hemingway's uh, Hills Like White Elephants, right? Very simply written, mm. small words, you know, not ornate, um, not a ton of metaphor going on there. But the question of, but what are they talking about? How, what? And like, there's an opacity to the whole thing um, that that is kind of at odds with the simplicity of the language. Similarly, um, there's a poet called H.D., Hilda Doolittle, but um, uh, she's a kind of early 20th century uh, poet. She has this extremely short poem um, called Oread, and it goes, whirl up, see, Whirl your pointed pines, splash your great pines on our rocks, hurl your green over us, cover us with your pools of fur. And it's super short. It is, you know, six lines. And in those six lines, you have several repetitions of the same word. It's very simple. But like a haiku, you kind of have to sit with it and kind of let it resonate um, and let it kind of rattle around in your brain until you go, what is it even about? You know, these, these kind of bright images that happen from it. Conversely, you can have really lush, really ornate language that is actually very easy to understand. So something like um, Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market, which is a very long poem, which is full of lists of gorgeous fruit and stuff, um, has a very straightforward narrative, has a very, um, I mean, and, and a very lilting sort of nursery rhyme rhythm. Um, Morning and evening, maids heard the goblins cry, come by, come by, you know. It's, it's much simpler, even though the lists of, you know, plump dew-checked peaches and things like that are going to be, you can feel your mouth full of them. Um, but nevertheless, like you don't really lose the thread of the story being told. So based on that, I want to move to our homework um, for this episode. And the homework is, uh, is this. It is basically um, asking you to both distill and expand a very short and simple sentence. So here is your sentence. It's a dark, gray winter's day. There's a lot of snow on the ground, 
and a cold wind's blowing. I want you to take that sentence and I want you to distill it. I want you to um, do whatever you feel is going to result in making that sentence feel like a poem. It can mean cutting out the connective tissue, like the prepositions. It can mean introducing line breaks. It can mean reorganizing the words however you want. I want you to turn this sentence into something dense and compact that feels like a very short poem. And once you've done that, I want you to then take that very short, compact poem, and I want you to elaborate on it, expand on it outwards, while still maintaining that poetic feeling. And I want you to, to consider how you can keep it feeling like a poem while giving it more shape and length. You might want to refer to a night brain exercise from a previous uh, episode in order to help you do that. But the idea is to just contract and then expand that language in a way that feels like you're playing a poetic accordion. This is amazing, and I immediately want to go do that. Uh, thank you so much, Amal. Um, so for all of you, uh, this has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.